So 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shochoch, which belonged to Judah and pitched between that place and a few other places. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels or shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. And just down the passage, a little bit to verse 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel as he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And then down further, please, down to verse number Thirty-eight. And Saul armed David with his armour, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him, with a, armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armour, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, 
for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the earth. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And you can read the rest at your own time. That'll do for our reading. It's a lengthy reading, but... Uh, just to give a flavour of this story that if you've been through Sunday school, and you may have not, you may have, you may have not, but if you have been through Sunday school or any sort of uh, children's meeting, then no doubt you will have heard the story of David and Goliath. It's even familiar, uh, at least in its general sense, to those who know very little about the Bible. The concept of David and Goliath is familiar. For example, every time Scotland beats England at anything, which isn't often, it's always David against Goliath. It's the small against the large. It's that concept that's used metaphorically in sporting analogy and all sorts of analogy when a small business goes up against a big business and then it's a David and Goliath situation. And so the David and Goliath story has transcended scripture into culture and the concept would be familiar. It's the concept often of the underdog. That would be the idea that people would take. Facing your giants and conquering your fears is often the lesson that's taken from it. But when you think about it in a biblical context, if that's all it's about, facing your giants and conquering your fears, then that really is not the biblical message. Because, after all, why would the Lord Jesus need to come and die upon a cross if all the Bible had to say to us was lessons about facing our fears or conquering our giants and facing our fears or whatever. And there is much more to it than that. There is more significance to it than that. This is not an illustration. This is not a man-made message or a man-centred message. But rather, this is a message and this is uh, an incident that ought to take your focus off man and onto the Lord. Certainly when you read the words of David, that's what that's all about. It's taking the focus off even David, certainly Saul, and onto the Lord. And so when you think about this idea of this man-centered message, it's okay, we've got little David out here as well. 
He's about to get slain by a giant, I think. <laughs> when you think about um, this, you're thinking not so much about David as just an underdog and going up against a giant, but there is a, there is a lesson here that's going to direct us to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see, even in David, a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's a very unlikely hero when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17. You see the scene is set. Israel and the Philistines, two nations are going to war. Their armies are gathered either side of a valley. They're on the hillsides. And you can picture the scene. And instead of both armies engaging in battle continually, although they did seem to set the battle in array, but... Goliath comes out and he's coming out repeatedly and he's taunting the armies of Israel. And the idea is just this, that they would send a champion, a representative of the army, of the nation, to fight on their behalf. And the idea is that what happens between these two men, the rest of the armies will bear the consequence of that. So, for example, if one wins, then the other army is vanquished. And rather than the armies fight, the two champions would fight. It wasn't an unusual concept in those days of battle. Well, out comes Goliath. And if you were in the armies of Israel, you would be too keen to face this man. He was huge. He's massive. He's a giant. He was over nine feet tall. And he wasn't skinny. He was massive. And he had big weapons. People, the man carrying his shield. He was hugely imposing. He was unnatural in that sense. And the reaction of Israel was absolute terror. And it says this, that they were dismayed. That's the word it's used. They were dismayed. And that simply means that they were broken or they were cracked. And it means that when they saw Goliath, the army was defeated before it even entered into battle. They were done for. And Goliath's presence, taunting them, calling them out, was sufficient that their, their courage failed them. And so already they have lost before they have even started. Now, when you think about this, I'm going to take the whole story in its totality. We're not going to work through bit by bit. We're going to think about the story as a kind of one total scenario. And as you think about this, we're going to see an overriding lesson. And it is about faith and fear. And when we think about faith, then we're thinking about that which requires a foundation, which is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And that's always been the case. And we're going to see that David acts on faith, not simply human courage. Now the Israelites, for example, really should not have been shaking in the proverbial sandals here. They should not have been afraid of this giant. Now I know he was physically imposing. I know that he was physically terrifying. That wasn't the point. You see, God had made promises to this nation and been true to those promises. And God had promised them that when they went to war against the enemies of God and of his people, then God would be with them. God would give them victory. And it didn't matter the odds that they faced. It didn't matter the ferocity of the enemy on the other side of the battlefield. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1, they were instructed that when they would go out against their enemies and they would see horses and they would see chariots and they would see a, an army larger than their own, they should not be afraid of them. That was the instruction. The Lord, your God, is with you. And then Moses reminds them that that's the same Lord that brought you out of Egypt. So whenever you go into battle, 
Remember that the Lord your God is with you and remember who he is. And in order to remind yourself of the greatness and the might, the majesty of your God, remember what he has done in the past. So cast your mind back. And for them, they were casting their minds back to their beginning, to their birth as a nation, to their redemption out of Egypt, their deliverance from slavery through the Red Sea and the mighty triumph of the redeeming strong arm of the Lord. He says, that's the Lord your God who will be with you in battle. The, the same principles apply in our New Testament context. And although we're not talking about physical battle or physical enemy, we are talking about spiritual conflict and making the application from the physical to the spiritual. And the same broad principle applies. That we too, in a New Testament context, when we go out into our lives, which is the sphere of our spiritual conflict, our spiritual conflict is not dramatic one-offs, kind of occasional set-piece events. Our spiritual con- conflict is the day-to-day realities of going to work, going to college, getting up in the morning, and making decisions about what you watch, read, what you say, what you listen to, making decisions about righteousness in your daily life as to whether you'll steal or not steal, whether you'll tell a lie or not tell a lie, whether you'll make a good choice or a bad choice. That's the spiritual conflict that we're engaged in. And in the midst of that, we face an enemy, Satan himself, and his minions. And we face also an atmosphere that we live in that is his construct. It's his atmosphere designed to pull out from us desires which are latent in our flesh. That's all spiritual conflict. But in the midst of that, the Lord has promised to be with us. And who exactly is our Lord? He's the one who has redeemed us from bondage. He's our personal redeemer. He's the one who died on the cross, defeated Satan, has won the victory and is with us in the conflict. And so the children of Israel should not have been afraid. The reason they were afraid was that they had forgotten their God. They had forgotten what God had done for them and with them. And they were looking at this on a purely human level, a purely horizontal level level and it terrified them now when you and I do that it has the same effect I mean after all if you go out into your life as a Christian seeking to live a Christian life without God so you try to uphold Christian standards and you try to uphold a Christian lifestyle but if you've got no ongoing relationship and communion with the Lord If you're not in prayer and reading, if you're not being spiritually strengthened, if you're not walking by faith, then you will be absolutely overwhelmed by the environment in which you live and the enemies that you face. They are the children of Israel. They are afraid. They're broken. They shouldn't have been. You see, the people are trembling, not because Goliath was sinister, not because he was formidable. He was all of those things. He was never going to be anything else. The reason they're paralyzed is they are people of God, but not people of faith. There's a huge difference. And as a result, they do not have the power, they do not have the fortitude to face their foe even although they're representing God and bearing his name. So they're a defeated people. Now that's exactly the same as us. 
I'm sure you've I've experienced it. I'm sure you've experienced it. You you are bearing the name of Christ, but you have no spiritual power in your life. Maybe not even just in your life, in that day, in that week, in that moment, in that season. And so we're going to see here that the word of God is key to this. The word of God is key because faith does not operate in a vacuum. Faith operates on the foundation of God's word. And if God's word is removed from the equation, then faith is just some kind of um, nebulous concept. It has no firm foundation upon which to rest. So we need to be people of God, but we also need to be people of the Bible. We need to be people of the word of God. I read this quote here, and uh, it was a kind of rebuke to me, so I'll give it to you. And I'm that old now, I only use a little bit of the social media spectrum because I can't work out the rest of it. So um, this applies to me, but only in a a short way. Um, It'll probably apply to younger folk in a lot more. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, uh, TV, we're more familiar ground there, TV, the PlayStation, etc., all serve as a testimony in our modern day that the lack of Bible knowledge amongst Christians has got nothing to do with a lack of time. It may have in a previous generation, it doesn't have in our generation. We cannot use time as an excuse. It's impossible. We have no argument. We also have no argument about resources. We have more biblical resources freely available to us at any point in redemptive history. Bar none. And yet, it seems that as Christians, we're fairly weak. (coughs) Fairly weak. (coughs) So what's the answer to that? Well, if it's not time, if it's not resources, it needs to be application. And the people of God here had so much blessing given to them by God under Saul. Yet they were, so, they were so weakened and paralysed by fear as they faced their foes. Now, of course, that failure is seen most of all in their king, Saul. I mean, he was a disaster. I read this and I hadn't actually picked this up. And I'm not sure why I've never heard this. I'm sure I have heard it and I've just forgotten it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17... There was instruction, just turn to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there was instruction given about a king. Now, some of this instruction, I do remember, the bit about what the king would do to the people and their children and so on. In Deuteronomy 17, verse number 14, it says this, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt... In any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. So the Lord said, listen, through Moses, he said, listen, you're going to want a king because everyone else has got a king. Well, when you want a king, make sure it's a king that I choose. One from among your brethren shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayst not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, he shall henceforth return no more that way. So don't let him take you back to Egypt so he can get more horses. In verse 17, Now shall he multiply wives to himself, one will do, that his heart turn not away, now shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold, and it shall be. Here it is here. 
it shall be. When he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest the Levite, and it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Saul's king. Saul's been chosen. Saul, if they had obeyed this, has written out the law himself. And he should have had it with him. That was the instruction. And he should have read it every day. And as the leader amongst God's people and over God's people, he had to be familiar and be daily reminded of God's law. That was Saul. That was God's expectation of the king. Now, I don't know if he did that. I doubt it. But that was God's expectation. And if he had done it, he may not have been standing there absolutely petrified. He would have been familiar with Deuteronomy, the promises of God. But even if he did know it, he certainly wasn't living in the good of it. He wasn't acting and putting into practice what he read or should have read. And so, at the very best, you can say he's like one of these people that James speaks about, those who hear the word but don't do it. He was a hypocrite in many ways. Here he is, and he's representing God to the people, but he's not trusting God himself. He should have stepped out as the leader of God's people and faced down this giant himself. But rather than that, he hides away and the giant stands taunting God, really. Certainly the name of God. So here is, here is Saul, and he is a complete failure when it comes to the word of God. But let's not be too hard on Saul, because you know we can shake our heads and say, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's Saul, and God expects him to read that book, at least part of it, every single day, and he's not doing it. And then you say, hold on a minute here. That's the very same expectation that God has for us. It's exactly the same. Now, that doesn't mean you have to write it out. But the same expectation is this, that we should possess the word of God and we should read the word of God regularly. And because you see Saul failing through a lack of application of God's word, that's the same reason why we fail. I mean, it's not any more complicated than that. It's as simple as that. That's why the enemies of God may have victory over you and may have the ascendancy over you in your life. That's why you may feel that you are not triumphing over those enemies, spiritual foes that face you, but rather you are on the losing side, as it seems so was. Now then contrast that with David. David comes along. Now we can go away into the background of David, but not for our purposes this evening. David's an interesting character. He's really a relative nobody um, when you think about the whole army of Israel and you think about the context of this battle. He's not even in the army, actually. He's not even a soldier. But when you read about the background, as David reveals some of it here in 1 Samuel 17, you discover this, that David knew the word of God and he knew God. 
Now, he may not have been a soldier and he may not have been a king. That was irrelevant. He was a child of God in that sense. He was part of the nation of Israel. And when he arrived into the situation, he saw it with a completely different perspective. It was the same situation that Saul was looking at. But when David looked at the same situation, he saw something radically different. Perspective, attitude is everything when you think about this. Here are two Christians and they go out into the same uh, context of a day and the day goes very differently for them. And one of them fails and one does not fail. Usually the difference is perspective and attitude. Things over which you do have control and not worrying about the things that you don't have control over. But you most certainly have control over perspective and attitude. And here David's perspective is different. In verse 32 he says, listen, don't let any man's heart fail because of this giant. He says, I will go and fight him. I will go and fight the Philistine. Now, David isn't being some sort of superhero soldier. David is simply being biblical and faithful. So although David appears to rise away above the normal, actually, David is the normal. Everyone else is falling well short. This is radical Christianity. You know, you, you've got all these books about radical Christianity and about doing radical things. Radical Christianity appears to be normal Christianity. Because when you think about what radical Christianity is meant to be, it comes back down to faithfulness and it comes back down to righteousness and it comes back down to regular walking with God in your life. Reading your Bible, praying, doing the right things, serving God and so on. And that seems to be called radical Christianity, but it only looks radical in the context of other people's disobedience. And so, dynamic godliness here. What is it? David knows the Bible. David believes the Bible. And David lives according to what he believes. That's about as radical as it gets. That's about as dynamic as it needs to be. David comes and he's not even, as I say, a superhero. He's a shepherd. He's not in the army. He's actually bringing the food trolley up to the front. That's what he's doing. He's carrying the packed lunches. You wouldn't think that he is going to be the man to defeat this giant. But he comes not looking for a giant to defeat, but looking for food to deliver. That's what he came to do. And so as he is there, faithful, obscure, used by God in his own life, in the quietness of his life, in the context of his normal day-to-day life, and now the opportunity opens up and he steps onto this very public stage. And he sees things differently. Now, why does he see things differently? Is it the case that because some dramatic thing happened in his life, all of a sudden Dave's a different man? No, Dave's not a different man, he's the same man. Is it the case that God suddenly endues him with a great spirituality to meet a big crisis? No. David is just going to behave in exactly the same way he behaved when there wasn't a single eye upon him out in the wilderness, when it was just him and God. So David has been consistent here. This is the fruit of consistency. 
This is what happens when you live consistently. It means that when the big crisis comes, you already have life rhythms, you already have habits, you already have responses which have been worked out in lesser situations. So when the bigger situation comes, it's the same response, it's the same perspective, it's the same life rhythm functioning in a bigger crisis. So here is David, and David is showing faithfulness. Now, think about it from a human perspective. Here's this massive giant Goliath. He's formidable. And Saul and his soldiers, they say this. This is their perspective. They say in, in verse 25, have you seen this man? Well, you could hardly not see him. Have you seen this man? Now, you can, we would say something similar to that in Scotland. Have you seen that? Have you actually seen that? And there's this monster down in the valley, huge soldier, standing there, roaring and bawling up the valley. And the soldier's saying, have you seen that? Well, when you looked at that, what did you see? What did you see? What they saw was just a man. That's what they saw. Have you seen this man? And they accepted his viewpoint. Am I not the Philistine and you're the servants of Saul? That seems fair enough. It's a statement of fact. He's a Philistine. They're the servants of Saul. But you see, that perspective excludes God. So that is the natural perspective. He's a giant. They're servants of Saul and he's a Philistine. But there's a spiritual dimension to the whole equation. And that spiritual dimension is a game changer. And the spiritual dimension is grasped by David and expressed by David in his language, which expresses his thinking. He's not thinking that Saul has servants. He's not thinking that Goliath is a Philistine. He's thinking differently. And so he says in verse 26 and in verse 36, who is this, and he calls him, an uncircumcised Philistine? Now, he's not cursing or swearing or being abusive. He's, he's stating a spiritual fact. And that spiritual fact is important. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. And then he says this, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Or well, not the armies of Saul. Saul's not mentioned. They're the armies of the living God. Here's the spiritual dimension. So he sees Saul out the equation. He sees Goliath in relation to God. He's uncircumcised. He sees the armies of Israel in relation to God. They are God's armies. So here's a man who is uncircumcised in the eyes of God. Here are the armies who are the armies of the living God. Now that's David's perspective, and the battle's as good as won before he starts. The thing, the thing is, as good as done. How could it go any other way? How could Goliath possibly triumph over those armies? These are the armies of the living God. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. It's not even a fair contest in David's mind. And so David may as well go out and fight. Why not? The triumph is assured. 
And so the perspective is different. One quote put it this way, there is David's spiritual perspective. Saul and the armies of Israel were afraid because they saw it as a conflict of their puny muscle against Goliath's mighty muscle, of their little weapons against Goliath's big weapons, of their experience in warfare against Goliath's experience in warfare. David saw it differently. He saw it as a conflict between God and the forces of evil. Saul and his men saw Goliath and thought, he's so big we can never kill him. David saw the same man and thought, he's so big I can't miss him. There's a completely different perspective. Now take that from 1 Samuel 17 and then transfer it into your life. As a Christian, every one of us face spiritual foes and live in an atmosphere, this world, which is far too big for us to overwhelm. There's no question about it that if left to ourselves, we would be destroyed in this world. Our testimony would be gone. We would, we would, we would be tempted in some way to sin and we would fall. No question. There is no doubt that Satan is far too strong for us. There is no doubt that the temptations of this world are far too attractive for our flesh to resist. Of course they are. It's a foolish person that thinks that they can resist Satan and would not be attracted by the world in whatever manifestation and would be able to rise above it all on their own. That is a person who's heading for disaster. David wasn't like that. David looked at this and he said he's an uncircumcised Philistine. Now what did that mean? Well, to be uncircumcised was to be outside of the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham and the blessings that flowed from that, from that covenant relationship with God. And God instituted <coughs> the sign of circumcision with Abraham when Abraham was living in the land of Canaan. So here is Abraham and he has a special relationship with God that's going to be for him and his descendants. Now, they were living in the midst of of people who are not part of that relationship, ungodly people. So the people of the land were morally corrupt, Sodom and Gomorrah and all that kind of stuff. There was a moral, an immorality that was corrupting. And God wanted his covenant people to be morally pure and holy, set apart to him. So he directed Abraham to institute circumcision as the sign of that covenant. And circumcision, the act of circumcision was significant. It wasn't chosen randomly. God deliberately chose circumcision as the sign of their holiness, their sanctification being set apart from the world around them. And the Jews, to be blunt, had a practical, a graphic reminder of the need for them to be sexually pure in the midst of impurity because that was their covenant relationship with God. And so they bore that sign. David says he's uncircumcised. He is not part of that covenant relationship. He is corrupt. He is wicked. He is separated from God. He has none of the blessings or promises that we have 
as God's people. So he's not a giant after all. Not really. Looking at problems from gospel set here, I noted a few down. Anger. Anger. Now anger is sin. Sometimes we don't think that, but it is. The world calls it having a short fuse. So that's the world's perspective on anger. Somebody has a short fuse. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that being wrongfully angry, and that's most of the time, towards another person is the equivalent of murder. That's what the Bible says. Not having a short fuse. And that we must control our anger and not just let it be. There's two different perspectives of the same characteristic. Adultery. Adultery, the world calls it, listen to the language that the world uses. The perspective, a fling. Somebody had a fling. An affair. Somebody had an affair. Sounds adventurous, sounds exciting. The Bible calls it sin. Tells us it ruins lives. Devastating effects. It's the way of death. It's a different language. It's a different perspective. Abortion. The world calls it termination. Like a train arriving at a destination. Termination. It is a word that lacks any relationship to life. Termination. The Bible calls it murder or the shedding of innocent blood. Two different perspectives on the very same thing. The perspective is important. The language is important. Homosexuality. All the gender issues that people are so afraid to talk about because you're hit with a huge stick if you express your view on any of these things. You see that in our media. The world uses the word gay or expressions like alternate lifestyles and so on. The Bible uses different language, strong language. Abomination is one of the words it uses. Sin. Perspective is important. And as we go out into the world, we must go out with God's perspective. Not the world's perspective. Because we will be defeated before we step out onto the battlefield. One writer said this, this problem is not a Philistine champion. It's an uncircumcised Philistine. Representing sin that's an offence to the living God. He's not just a, a servant of Saul. He's a member of the army of the living God. He's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The battle is his. That's the starting point for victory. Perspective. Let us get things in perspective. Now, the character of David's faith. David's faith was not vague and ambiguous. David's faith was specific and targeted. So that David believed in the living God. That's true. Who was in a covenant relationship with his people. David had faith in the Lord in this particular set of circumstances. 
It's not that he was expressing it in some vague terms, saying, I'm a man of faith. I'll go in faith. Faith in the living God. Faith in the Lord. His faith was placed in the Lord. David didn't just say, well, to Saul, you know what? Um, what you need to do, Saul, is you just need to trust the Lord in this situation. You, you trust the Lord in this situation. That's my advice to you. No, he didn't. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go and fight the Philistine myself. And I'll go in dependence upon God. He has an active, aggressive, proactive faith. He's not running back. He's not hiding behind a shield. He's stepping out. He's facing down the enemies of God, not in a self-confident manner, but stepping out with his complete faith and dependence in the living God. He's not saying, you go. He's saying, I'll go. Now, why was he able to say that? Because he had proved God already. This was not the first time for David. You see, he steps out on the basis of past experience of faith. Past experience with God. And the things that he had done, I mean, if it had been any one of us, we would be doing a book tour and all the rest of it. Great paperbacks, and all, not paperbacks nowadays, you, but whatever it is nowadays. And, you know, fighting a bear and fighting a lion, you know, and grabbing by the beard and all this. It's dramatic stuff. But, you know, David just rolls that out in conversation, casually. And he's saying to Saul, don't you worry about me. And, by the way, I fought a bear and I fought a lion. And if I can fight them, I'll fight that uncircumcised Philistine. It's a pattern, you see. <coughs> if the first time we engage and stand up for Christ in the midst of our spiritual foes, and it's a huge battle, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. <coughs> but if you're living by faith every day, and the small, personal, intimate, battles are things that you know all about every single day sorts of things that no one else knows about the decisions that you make every day these are the proving grounds of faith so that when the occasional big issue does arrive you have a rhythm, you have a pattern you have a way of doing things that is established, you have confidence in God because you proved them two weeks back in Tuesday when you were on your laptop and something flashed up and you, you didn't click it. And you, you prayed to God for strength despite the fact you were tempted and you shut it down. And God gave you the strength to do it and then you were able to do it again and you did it again and then you established a pattern of doing it and, and things like that and different things in your life. And you've been proving God in these things. You've been living by faith, trusting his promises. And so when the big thing comes, you're ready. David was ready. He had targeted specific faith, faith which was based on experience with God. And he had come to the realisation you cannot live in peaceful coexistence with a bear or with a lion or with a giant. You're not going to live in peaceful coexistence with these things. 
Uh, they either you're going to be defeated or you're going to win the victory. Somebody's going to win. So you're just going to bump along. I mean, don't think, please, that Satan's just going to make a little agreement with you and say, tell you what, we'll call it a score draw <coughs> and we'll just bump along together and we'll both be fine. That's not the way it works. Satan is going about like a roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour, and he will devour every single one of us. He has the capacity, he has the interest, he is persistent. And when we, by the way, he's not all-knowing, but when we show him our weaknesses by our behaviour, he learns. And then that's our weak point. And he's back at it. And he's back at it. It's a conflict. And here is David, and David has proved God in his faith, and David is now ready. And he comes, and I'm afraid you won't get a sermon from me about the significance of these five stones. And you may have a sermon about the Pentateuch and all sorts of different things, which is fantastic. Uh, I don't think it's in the Bible, but it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's simply five little stones because that's what David used and he was familiar with and that's what he had proved. He didn't want Saul's weapons. That was good enough for Saul, but it wasn't for him. And he takes that which he knows and he goes into battle with that which he knows as guided by God. And he did use a sword anyway to chop his head off and kill him. But anyway, he, he, he used the, sword to be, the, the stone to begin with. The point is not the five stones. That's not the point of this. The point is that David's faith was in God as he went into the conflict. And not just that, our time's really gone, but not just that David's faith was in God. Notice that David's focus was on God's glory alone. He had a twofold aim, if you'll excuse the pun. His twofold aim was this. He wanted God's glory to be known. God was being taunted, verse 45 to verse 47. His name was bound up with his people. And as long as this Philistine is taunting the people of God, he's taunting God's name. And David will not have God's name slandered like that. He was more concerned for God's glory than his own glory. Now that wasn't like Saul. When Saul won a victory, he builds a monument to himself. When David wins the victory, he wants to sing God's praises and God's glory. It's a completely different perspective. Now as I finish, think about this as well. This is a wee study for you. Why not think about David and Goliath in this way? Why not think about us as David's brethren? And why not think about David as a picture of the Lord Jesus? And think about this. God is going to save his people from an enemy. But we, David's brethren, we can't do it. We are completely broken without the resources or ability to triumph. So what does God do? He provides a substitute for those people in David. David steps down as a substitute to represent, as a champion, these people. He fights as one of them on their behalf, down in the valley, right down he went. He slays the great foe and he wins a bride to himself. For that was the blessing that would follow. 
He went out as Israel's representative. He stood in their place. He fought their battle for them. He achieved their victory. They didn't have to lift a finger. He won a bride for himself by so doing. He delivered the kingdom back to the king. And he came back out of that valley alive. There's a whole principle of imputation in there, if you really want to have a look at it. And you can see that Christ representatively triumphs in the valley in order for the kingdom to be delivered back to the king and for him to be awarded the bride. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. And what happens is this, when David wins, the town's people come out and they rejoice. Death is broken. He is alive. They are free. And the Philistine armies are broken. Their power is gone. It's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus that you can develop. But for our purposes this evening, my main point is just this. It is faith right in the teeth of our foe. It is the triumph of our God as we trust him in the day-to-day battles that we face, the spiritual conflict. And if we know nothing about it, it means that we must therefore be up in the top of the hillside. It means that we must therefore have waved the white flag of surrender because Satan is a foe who is actively hostile to us and if we are not engaged in conflict with him, if we don't know anything of struggle on a daily basis, of that struggle with temptation, that struggle with pride or with anger or or with whatever it may be, if we know nothing of that tension in our lives, It's probably because we've not engaged in conflict. Have a think about that. Let's learn the lessons from David and let's pray and give thanks for his work.